This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. As the nation faces unprecedented multiple climate crises, many people, and especially many young people, are asking, if not now, when will we take action? Leading the charge is Varshini Prakash, the co-founder and executive director of the Sunrise Movement, a youth-driven movement that advocates for political action on climate change. She has just released a new collection of essays she's co-edited called Winning the Green New Deal. The book is Equal Parts Explainer, Call to Arms, and Roadmap. She joins us in conversation next. We are so happy to have with us today the co-founder and executive director of the Sunrise Movement, Varshini Prakash. As most of you know, the Sunrise Movement was the group that led the occupation of Nancy Pelosi's office to demand passage of the Green New Deal back in 2018. Varshini has a new book out that is a collection of essays she has co-edited called Winning the Green New Deal, Why We Must, How We Can. It has essays by Naomi Klein, Joseph Stiglitz, Bill McKibben, and many, many others. Varshini Prakash, hello. Thank you for being here. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. And if you want to know what the book looks like yes. right here, I have too many copies right next to me <laughs> at all times and anywhere I reach in my house, I can find one. So yeah, it's great to be here and great to be talking about the book. And I, just like the biggest fan of Indivisible, I think you all are brilliant. So thank you for having me here. Thanks for listening in. And Yeah. Well, as I was saying before we got started, the feeling is definitely mutual. Uh, when I told people that you were going to be appearing on the podcast, people went kind of nuts. And so you have definitely a huge fan base with Indivisible. So I want to talk about the book for sure. And I definitely want to talk about the role that you recently played in shaping Joe Biden's climate policy. Mm-hmm. But I want to start by asking you kind of a larger big picture question. So as you know, we are having extreme weather ex- events mm-hmm. all across the nation right now. There are massive wildfires in California uh, and across the West. There was a derecho in Iowa, of all places. Uh, Hurricane Mm -hmm. Laura made landfall as a Category 4 hurricane in the Gulf Coast. Do you get the sense that people are finally waking up to the urgency of all of this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 absolutely terrifying. And to anybody who might be listening in or, or know folks who are in the Gulf South or in California or Colorado or Iowa or wherever, I mean, it feels like it's not just any of it, those places. It feels like it's it's rampant and all over this country and all over the world at this point. Um, just thinking of you and hoping that you're as safe as possible. Um I think I think absolutely the, the the crises that are emerging in front of us right now I think have highlighted the way that this crisis is not you know 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years in the future this is hitting us in this moment and if in 2020 we're watching wildfires blanketing all of California I'm getting you know emails from my friends in Denver who are saying they're setting up self-made bunkers um, if we're you know watching chemical fires from from uh, tropical storm Laura that are leaking, you know, poison into the air and water. Um, you know, that's what the reality is in 2020. Uh, can you imagine what this crisis will look like just 10 or 15 years into the future? And, and beyond that, I don't, I, honestly, it's too terrifying to imagine if we don't take drastic action. So, you know, I, I do think that 
it has been affecting people uh, dramatically. But um, I think, you know, the first step, and, and we go through this in the book, actually, it's a, a critical part of, of, of one of the chapters is, is talking about, you know, how do we actually push the majority of people to understand and be um, clear about the crisis at hand. And something that we found out is that we've actually won a big part of this piece of the puzzle. In fact, the majority of public sentiment is actually behind the issue of the Green New Deal or, or understands that at the very least, even if they don't support a Green New Deal, that we have got to um, build uh, support for government action to stop the climate crisis. Um, and so I think the piece that we actually need to go beyond that um, not just about building this sort of durable majority of public support, is we've also on top of that got to build an, an active and organized base, which is something that Indivisible really knows something about, right? Um, it's not just enough to have public support on an issue. Um, over 60% of Americans believe we should have stricter gun laws, and yet the NRA is still able to mobilize this small but extremely relentless and perseverant group of gun enthusiasts to, to ham up any chance of reform. And the same thing is, is, is true for climate and a number of other issues. Um, so we need not just public support, but we also need this active and sustained group of people numbering in the millions. Um, and that's kind of like the crux of what Sunrise is attempting to do. And we're going to have to do alongside organizations like Indivisible um, is, is mobilize, you know, 10 million, 20 million people behind this issue to really kickstart the decade of the Green New Deal and pass the, the tremendous pieces of policy that we're going to have to do over the next decade or longer to stop the climate crisis and build economic security for all people. And we'll get to the Green New Deal and how that ushers all of that in. But I do have a follow-up question about how we maintain the sense of urgency, because here, here's a good example. So we're in Washington state here, and two years ago, we had devastating wildfires, unprecedented. Mm -hmm. The air quality was the worst in the world in Seattle. And of course, at that time, everybody is thinking about the climate and everybody's motivated. But today, it's completely clear. It's 75 degrees. It's a beautiful day outside. Mm -hmm. These things happen so gradually. And 90% of Americans, even though we just listed off all of the ways that so many Americans are being affected right now, still 90% yeah. of, Amer of Americans are not being personally affected. How in your mind do we keep this a front burner issue when it is not so immediate always in people's minds? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great question. I, you know, I think part of the part of the broader theory of change that we've got to make happen over the next few years is you know not only are we building this this active base of public support and kind of shifting public opinion but we've got to take that and we've got to turn it up a notch we essentially have to ignite a moral crisis in this country to the effect that people in this country understand that we are facing a grave, essentially existential threat to our way of life, to, to, to how human civilization has functioned um, for tens of thousands of years. Um, and so when I think about this, I, I, I actually think back to the civil rights movement. And much in the way that, you know, Martin Luther King and civil rights activists were able to ignite this moral crisis around uh, against white supremacy in Birmingham, Alabama, we also have to figure out how we ignite a moral crisis around climate change by essentially 
highlighting the urgency and the injustice of the crisis again and again and again. And I don't think that this happens all at once. It's not like we do one direct action and for the next 10 years, everybody is like in this sustained period of, you know, moral outrage. Um, this is, it's a process. Um, if you look at the beginning of, of you know, Project C that took place in, in Birmingham, um, at that time, I mean, support uh, for things like uh, civil rights and, and voting rights was extremely low. Um, but then you had, you know, all of this direct action that took place. You had the Children's March. You had um, the March on Washington. You had these um, catalyst moments that triggered so much um, direct action and grassroots organizing that were pivotal, that actually shifted public opinion dramatically. And just a year later, you have things like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Um, so we've got to do something similar. And I don't think that that happens, um, that comes in waves. And it is incumbent on movements really to um, to actually be proactively creating those moments um, where the entire country is alive and awake to the crises that we're facing. And of course, ultimately, all of this culminates in policy change, right? Yeah. And so uh, I know that a lot of people know that you were at the table in July. You were invited to be part of the Bernie Biden Unity Task Force. The Sunrise Movement initially gave Biden an F on climate. So what specifically did you get him to move on? Yeah. So I, you know, I think how I would describe that whole process was um, we didn't walk out of there with everything. And we also didn't walk out of there with nothing. Um, we were able to push Joe Biden on a number of different places. Um, he switched from um, a plan to get to 100 percent decarbonization of the power sector by 2050 and move that timeline up to 2035. Um, he set um a far more ambitious target for investment. So rather than having an investment of $1.7 trillion over 10 years, he um, has committed to a $2 trillion green jobs and infrastructure plan over four years. And the part that I'm really excited about is that he has committed that 40% of that investment will go directly to frontline communities. Um, so, you know, part of what we wanted to ensure is that justice, climate justice, addressing the egregious um, environmental racism and classism that exists in this country is essentially at the heart of, of his agenda. Um, and so another component of that is, is we were able to push them to expand indigenous rights as a part of this platform, um, basically committing that something like the Dakota Access Pipeline, where a wealthy white community uh, decided that they didn't want fossil fuel infrastructure in their backyard and it got rerouted through an indigenous community, never happens again. Um, so there's more, but those are some of the highlights that I would say. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the truth of the matter and the cruel reality of the climate crisis is that doesn't really care where Joe Biden was. The truth is we have we have kicked the can down the road on this issue for the last 40 years. And now it's just an absolute full blown emergency, as we discussed at the beginning of this conversation. Um, so we have a lot of work to do as movements to, um, you know, hold Biden to his word and, and to the campaign promises made, but actually elevate and escalate those ambitions every step of the way, because um, you better believe the fossil fuel industry is going to be on the other side attempting to water this down uh, at the same time that we're pushing him to to go even further. 
It is my understanding, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that what Biden has adapted as part of his platform, adopted rather, as mm-hmm. part of his platform, is the most progressive stance on climate in the history of a major uh, a political candidate running for president. Is that true? Yes, that is definitely true. Well, I, you know what's crazy about that is that his stance in 2020 is more ambitious than Bernie Sanders in 2016. So that, that is, is remarkable. Like yeah. Yeah. It's remarkable. And that's doing no small part to the work that you have done. I will just note that when I look at your Twitter feed, you get a lot of pushback <laughs> and you know where this question is going. Never look at the Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they say the first rule of Twitter is never read the comments. But because, yeah. you know, I always do my homework, I, I did go through and read. And I noticed that you get a lot of pushback from people in your feed who don't want to accept any compromise at all and feel that mm-hmm. you should have pushed much, much further in certain areas. How do you think about that? Yeah. Yes. Well, you may read my mentions more than I do, um, <laughs> but I do know that there are a considerable amount of people who were, um, you know, have had this idea that, you know, if we aren't walking out of that task force process with Bernie Sanders' Green New Deal in hand, that it wasn't worth it. Um, and that's not exactly my take. I think, you know, one of the the critiques that that Sunrise had actually at the beginning when we when we got when we were um get just getting started is that the left and and I would say just progressives more broadly and I think this has changed um since 2016 but prior to that and and even now I think progressives have really been sort of, you know, anything from either apathetic to downright just having an aversion to electoral politics and and political, um, the political arena. Um, But I think, you know, what has been really central to Sunrise's strategy is is actually bringing together both the the people power, the protest organizing, the grassroots organizing and mobilization strategy with the electoral strategy, because we got so sick and tired of fighting against politicians who held none of our values. And we got really excited about candidates. Um, I think Bernie Sanders was probably the first one that really ignited our interest in, in in, 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 in the political arena who were bringing millions of young people out and, and talking about the climate crisis like we do, right? Um, and so we actually need to find a way. There isn't a way to win with just people power, just railing against you know, the Donald Trumps of the world. And there's no way to win by just electing um, uh, you know, political leaders to office who carry our values, because in a large sense, political leaders are responsive to public will. So we have to both be building public will, and we have to be electing candidates that abide by our values at the same time. Um, and that has been like totally key to Sunrise's success. And I think it's essential to actually, like there's a tension there um, and it can be kind of like, I, I felt a lot of personal discomfort over the last few months, just like sitting squarely in the middle of that. But if you can just think about it, like, you know, let's go back like 2017, 2018, Sunrise just launches. We are starting to build our army of young people. We're launching Sunrise hubs across the country. We're doing actions, targeting politicians. 
Then we're working with partners like Justice Democrats and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez amongst the other squad members are elected to office. Um, then we have in the fall of, of 2018, right? AOC and, and Sunrise Movement are, and, and Justice Democrats team up um, for this action at Nancy Pelosi's office that goes viral and launches this policy framework called the Green New Deal. And then it's like we campaign, we use our movement energy to campaign on the Green New Deal and push it to the top of the political agenda for the Democratic Party. And then it's like we're able, because we were a disruptive, active, vocal movement, that is the only reason why, you know, I ended up on this task force, um, which is sort of ironic in a lot of ways. Um, but then you see some of the some of these elements of the Green New Deal actually end up improving Joe Biden's final climate plan. And to me, um, you know, that doesn't mean that's the full plan, but that is called winning. And I'm going to take every single win that we can possibly get to push the agenda forward. And I think we have to, um, but we can also hold our integrity and we can hold our ambition while we do that as well. And I think you occupy a space that uh, bespeaks your role in leadership, but I wanna go back to something that you said earlier and, and also an astute understanding of the political process, but you said mm -hmm. progressives have an aversion to electoral politics. And this gets mm -hmm. to uh, the first listener question that we have. Uh, I think a lot of people are worried that young progressives are not excited about Biden. Uh, Lisa asks, now that the unity meeting has happened, is there anything that the Biden-Harris ticket could do to get young people excited? The stakes are so high in this election. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm also really concerned about that. I think that it is critical that um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris stick to talking about the big vision of what we can do to improve the lives of, of young people, but also people all over the United States. Um, I think we've got to be really clear that this is not just, uh, that young people are not just trying to vote anti-Trump. They want to vote pro a vision for the future of America. Um, I think that young people actually really, really care about issues. Um, and if Joe Biden actually doubles down and talks about the plans that he has to avert climate catastrophe, if he has, if he talks about the massive jobs program that he's going to create that's going to employ young people, um, if he talks about the ways in which we are going to um, actually support young people uh, on issues like gun reform, I think those are the ways that you are going to win over young people. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think the, the truth is like young people are not particularly swayed by vague platitudes. They want to know really specifically how are these issues going to affect us. Um, so those are some of the things that I would say. And like doubling down on the issues that young people care about, like climate, like tackling white supremacy, um, like eradicating gun violence, et cetera. Like those are the issues that young people care about. And and I would love to see the Biden campaign doubling down on, on talking about those even more than they already have. Is that something that you yourself have made clear to the Biden campaign? Yes. Okay. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, if anybody from the Biden campaign is listening, uh, you, you 
<laughs> you've heard some tremendous yeah. advice, but I have a feeling that you, you've spoken much more closely with them. I want to shift gears and talk about something that comes up in the book, and this is the role of capitalism in mm-hmm. the climate crisis. So this is an essay by Naomi Klein, and it is about the forces of capitalism standing in the way of change. And I will just speak, frankly, from my own personal observations. It is hard not to see the fundamental aspects of capitalism as being incompatible with stopping the climate crisis. How do you see it? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think, you know, Naomi has been like, I feel like painstakingly detailed um, for the last several decades, the, the exact ways in which the like unfettered practice of, 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 free market capitalism has basically made it impossible to have a livable planet. Um, really recommend she her, the paperback version of her book on fire, the burning case for a green new deal is coming out um, next week. And so definitely recommend that y'all read it. But she was talking about this, I mean, a decade ago with This Changes Everything, which is a book that was hugely informative for some. It's a great book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great book. So, I mean, let's think about it this way. Like everything that we have to do to solve the climate crisis requires um, an active and involved federal government that is working to pass, you know, dozens of pieces of policy at the national level to decarbonize our economy, secure environmental justice, and hold, you know, fossil fuel corporations accountable to the pollution and damage that they've caused. Um, That sounds totally crazy when you consider how our government currently operates, but that is truly what is essential if we're going to prevent, you know, us from careening uh, towards climate catastrophe. And yet you've been told by people in power, person after person, suit after suit, as you say in the book, that this is simply impossible. Yeah, totally. It's not realistic. It's naive. It's impractical. Um, And I'm like, I, I mean, you don't have to ask me. You can ask like tens of thousands of scientists that all agree. Um, and so, you know, if you think about this, like if 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 we've got to pass this legislation and then we've got to implement it and then we've got to enforce it, that's going to require our government to make dramatic investments, right, to the tune of, of, of trillions and trillions of dollars in public projects that are aimed at, at building out this renewable energy infrastructure. Can I ask you a question about that? We just yeah. moved a few trillion dollars around in response to the pandemic. Do you think that yeah. changes the conversation around the Green New Deal and what's possible? Yeah, I, I think it should. Um, I think it should. And I think that progressives should, should use that moment to make that argument. I think we've got to also be keenly aware that, you know, you've got um, Republicans, but also you've got, uh, you know, members of, of senior staff members of, of the Biden campaign who are saying, you know, the bank is empty. Um and when we get into office, we've got to be clear or they said the shelves are bare or something like that. Um, that even though we've spent trillions of dollars on this pandemic seemingly out of nowhere, even though we've spent trillions of dollars, um, you know, cutting taxes for the wealthy, um, somehow we don't have money to support working people um, who are suffering as a result of this pandemic. So we're also already seeing the glimpses of austerity measures. We saw this the last time around, the minute that Obama got into office um, following the recession, we're gonna see it now. So we've gotta get really ready as progressives to fight back against that. Um, And I think that the, the pandemic has really called into, I think, question our priorities as a nation, right? The truth is, 
we have tons of resources and we have no shortage of good work to be done and good people to do it. Um, but we're putting a lot of those resources in the wrong places and we're doing it on a massive scale. I think that's also true of when you look at our mass incarceration system. It's true when you look at the amount of money we're spending propping up the fossil fuel industry. Um, so I think those are the big hazards that we're going to have to look out for over the next few months. And we really, really have to fight back against that because that will, um, you know, I, our greatest shot at, I think, stopping climate change in the next um, or at least getting the, the first down payment on a Green New Deal in the next few months is going to be out of the massive stimulus um, that comes in the first 100 days of, of Joe Biden's administration. But if we've got all of the, of the GOP and even Democrats saying we've got to tighten the belt and we don't have the money for it, um, that influx of capital is not actually going to be able to go to the right places and, and to the right priorities. It's, it's really going to require a change of consciousness ultimately. Yeah. And that is just such a big, heavy lift. And, you know, as I, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about a few things along those lines, particularly about why America is different. And I, I want to get your perspective on this. I mean, I certainly mm -hmm. you mentioned fossil fuel interests as standing athwart all of this. And, and I, mm -hmm. I get why corporate interests are against this. Uh, they don't want it. But why do we think the vast majority of rank-and-file Republican voters don't support the Green New Deal, particularly the jobs aspect? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing that you will find is that the vast majority of people do support climate action, especially when it's connected to jobs and the economy. And that is exactly what the GOP is afraid of. And that's why they have it on blast 24-7 on Fox News. Um, it is a part of a you know, 40-year campaign um, building out this myth of climate denialism in large part to protect the bottom line of a lot of these politicians' um, campaign donors who are the Koch brothers. They're, you know, the Amer they're getting lobbied by the American Petroleum Institute. Um, there is a deeply documented history of the, the, the misinformation campaigns uh, that fossil fuel industry has um, has has poured billions of dollars into in the last half century, um, even after having the best science on the issue. Um, Bill McKibben is 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 one of the co-founders of 350.org, and he also is a contributor for this book. And I would definitely recommend checking out the work of of Exxon New. Um, but he, you know, he's kind of like one of the biggest experts on this and and has a great history of 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 the way in which the fossil fuel industry has kind of misled um the public and then the GOP has taken up that rallying cry and then you've had Fox News kind of so you create this echo chamber of media establishment political establishment political donors um that are all echoing the same sort of lies and denial um, that ultimately has stymied progress on the issue for the last, you know, for forever. Um, and, and that's one of the biggest things that we're going to, but I think it's breaking through too, because what's exciting about the Green New Deal is by, you know, tying it to jobs, by tying it to health and talking about, you know, the need for clean water, the need for clean air, you're making it matter to people's sort of bread and butter issues rather than this strange decarbonization thing. <laughs> I don't know. 
there are very few people I could probably call, you know, count them on one hand who get really psyched about the idea of decarbonization for its own <laughs> sake, you know? Um, but I think if we can talk about this in terms of values and issues that people care about, um, personally, I think it, it, it will totally change the game. That's not to say like, if you're watching Fox news 24 seven, like, I don't think I'm going to convince you of much, mm. but I think it's not really about winning over those folks. It's about winning over the vast public, um, the you know tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of people who do not believe um, those lies and uh, are just actually waiting to be asked to join a movement um, to fight back against that kind of denialism and protect protect our world and its people. I mean, it's messaging, and I'm hearing in all of this an optimism from you. Yeah. Um, I moved to ask, are you an optimist about uh, where mm. we're going right now? That's a good question. Um, well, hmm. I don't know if I would call myself like an optimist. Like, I don't think, you know, I, I, the future is really dire. It's really scary. There are lots of days that I um, wake up and don't totally want to be awake and start my job and find it difficult to do so. Um, at the same time, I just don't actually, like there is so much at stake right now that I think it has shifted the conception of what success and failure can look like for an individual that is working on this issue. Um, to me, if we can even avert a decimal point of warming, we could potentially save the lives of millions and millions and millions of people. And that doesn't mean that millions and millions and millions of people might not suffer from the climate crisis, but I think it's still worth it. And to me, the only abject failure would be to not strive. Um, so that's what I'd say to anybody who's feeling sort of desolate or demoralized. I felt that way this week. It was it was overwhelming to see the way in which the climate crisis, white supremacy, gun violence, the pandemic, you know, fascism, charading as a political party, like all of that is kind of reaching this fever pitch all at once. Um, and it was overwhelming. But I think, you know, constantly regrounding in this idea of, of um like, I don't want to look back at the last, you know, when I'm older and think back to where I was today and say, I didn't try. Um, and that maybe if enough of us wake up each day and say, today, I'm just going to try, it will be, it will be the thing that actually changes the course of history in the end. There is so much in the book that touches on everything that you just brought up, including uh, issues of racial equity, which of course are very top of mind right now. There are wonderful essays by Ian Haney Lopez and Reverend yeah. uh, William Barber II on systemic racism intersecting with the climate yeah. crisis. So I, I really encourage people to check the book out. Uh, before I let you go, I will ask you one last question. You right now are talking to an audience of very committed activists. We happen to be Gen X and older. Uh, so what would your generation like to see our generation doing right now? particularly in the activist sector? Yeah. I mean, y'all are already organizing. You're already bringing more people into the movement. I think that's phenomenal. Um, I think that it is, you know, 
I think what's essential in this moment is is reaching out and broaching coalitions and connections and relationships. Um, we, I have no idea what's going to happen in the next few months, but I know it's going to be ugly. Um, there's a chance in November that we have a crisis of democracy, um, and there is a, there it, it is very clear to me that every single one of our movements are going to have to stand up together. Um, it's very clear to me that if Joe Biden wins. From December onwards, it's going to be a fight um, like hell to to ensure that we that the the the, the kind of resources and policies that um, that 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 are at the top of mind for um, for that administration actually serve and benefit the people that we care about in the communities that we come from. Um, we're going to have to be joined at the hip to make sure that we are able to amplify our power and firing on all cylinders together. Um, and we're already doing that. Indivisible and Sunrise are working together as part of the Green New Deal network, which is really, really exciting. So we're already campaigning collectively. Um, but I think forging those connections in your communities, um, figuring out shared targets and cutting issues in a way that um, allows us all to sort of be at the table together, that feels like the, the, the best thing that we could be doing kind of on the ground, um, because I think we're going to need to see each other and see the values that we share and the, the, the organizational sort of similarities and, and parallels um, uh, going into this like really, really tumultuous period of time. And the relationships are going to count, and that's what's going to get us through. 100% agreed, and we are committed to working together with you and are so glad to be in the fight together. Uh, Varshini Prakash, thank you for all that you do, and uh, thank you for taking the time today. I will let people know one last time that the name of your book is Winning the Green New Deal, Why We Must, How We Can, available wherever and however you get books. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, y'all. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fysears and Brianna Scharfenberg. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <music>